Welcome, everyone, to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, the greatest living pandemic novelist, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. Speaking of pandemic novels, we're going to be talking with contributor Dan Friedman about Sea of Tranquility, the latest novel from Emily St. John Mandel, author of Station Eleven. We're also going to talk to Stephen Garrett about the new uh, Secrets of Dumbledore, Fantastic Beasts, Harry Potter movie, whatever it is, and about the general decline in the Harry Potter universe. And we're also going to talk to Ryan Kahlberg about two different television shows, Tokyo Vice and Halo, which are airing on two streaming services that you may or may not have. But first, like I said, we're going to talk about pandemic novels. Dan Friedman and I will be right back after this musical interlude. We are coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic and a new genre of literature has begun to appear, the pandemic novel. Writers are giving us their impressions of what life was like during the pandemic. And the most prominent example of this genre of literature uh, showed up a couple of weeks ago. It's called Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel, who most famously wrote Station Eleven, which was made into an HBO Max series, and she's written other novels as well. And this book is getting a lot of attention. And Dan Friedman, frequent Book and Film Globe contributor, wrote about it for us. Hello, Dan. Hi, Neil. How's it going? It is going well, thank you. So yeah, so Sea of Tranquility. I also read this book. I've been paying special attention to uh, pandemic novels. I have my own pandemic novel coming out uh, very soon. So I've got my ear to the ground for this particular genre of literature. Now, I would say Sea of Tranquility, I didn't like this book personally, but you know, it is a... uh, competently constructed novel. I mean, Emily St. John Mandel is a you know highly professional writer. She knows what she's doing. And I would also say that um, it's primarily a time travel science fiction novel and the pandemic just kind of infuses it. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I, I would. I, I think I'd agree with everything you've said there, although I reserve the right to disagree with you later. I felt like the time travel stuff was a way of dealing with the pandemic. The pandemic, even though we are, as you mentioned, coming out of it, I think the pandemic is just a really difficult and a massive thing. And as I said in the review, that this is not the, you know, a sweeping novel of pandemic fiction. It is a very small scale understated novel, which is what Mandel does. And I think I felt that the time travel was just one of the strategies that she really used to contain uh, what is otherwise very difficult to deal with and uh, and to try and think about how to make it manageable. Our main character in the book, his name is Gaspery, which is kind of a pretentious fiction name. And he, he lives on the moon in, I believe, the 25th century. And 
the moon has developed or humanity has developed uh, this t- time travel technology and there's sort of this time travel bureaucracy that uh, is like uh, it's like as if um marvel's time variance authority from the tv show loki had been sort of filtered through the lens of uh, i don't know um npr <laughs> right yeah <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty boring um and bland and they, they they travel through time i don't know exactly what they're doing they're mostly just kind of preserving their bureaucracy and gaspery starts traveling through time uh and he messes things up and he creates these anomalies in different centuries and so he then he has to go back and try to correct it whatever it's all fairly com- it's all competently packaged but to my mind, the heart of the book and the real point of the book was this novelist character who exists a couple centuries before the main character. The main character is named after a character in one of the novelist's books, which is about a pandemic. So this is what this is this is what we're dealing with here, right? And Olive Llewellyn, who is the novelist, is on tour for her novel about the pandemic when a pandemic strikes Earth. Yeah, and 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 I think that the Olive Llewellyn character is pretty unashamedly uh, a stand-in for Mandel herself, and uh, and and I think you probably object to that more than I do, because I think that it you know this, what she wants to do is to talk about what it was like to be in the pandemic. I mean, that's what all these books start off with is, you know, whether that's uh, Steingart or uh, Mandel, or I mean, I assume your book too, at the heart of it is trying to pass the personal experience of this global phenomenon. And yeah, so I think that, that, that really Llewellyn's at the heart of it. Gasperi is the main protagonist in the sense that he runs around more than anyone else. But the, at the core of it is this is this experience. And, and of course, Llewellyn, well, not of course, I don't remember what we actually said, that, that Llewellyn's doing a tour, a book tour about her pandemic novel. And, and that's pretty much where um, Mandel was uh, in 2019, 2020, was actually talking about her own pandemic novel, Station Eleven, from 2014, and you know, just because you know that the pandemic is going to happen, it doesn't make it easier when it's when it actually does happen. Well, you know, my to me, the uh, the cleverest touch in the book was that you know, Gaspari can travel around in time to these different pandemic eras because he's been vaccinated against the pandemics that are going to occur there, so he's not going to um, get sick or bring it back or bring it bring the pandemic forward to the future because those. Diseases have already been eradicated. Um, you know, I like that bit. Here's the thing: I think you and I have very differing politics when it comes to pandemic uh, protection. And um, you know, Olive is supposed to, is is supposed to die in the pandemic that she's touring. You know, she's touring the novel, and then she's supposed to die on Earth, even though she actually lives on the moon. Gaspari goes. I'm, I'm going to spoil it. I don't care. He goes <laughs> back in time and warns her. That she's going to die in the pandemic. So what does she do? She puts on three masks, <laughs> gets on the moon shuttle, and then goes home and disinfects herself and then quarantines with her bourgeois family for a few months. And then the pandemic passes and they all live. Now, okay, the thing is, the pande- this particular pandemic that we just lived through, it wasn't the Spanish flu. You know, it was, it was killing old people and people with, pre- with serious pre-existing conditions for the most part. And Emily St. John Mandel and her young family in New York, they may have lived like you did, lived through the sort of the terrifying early days of the pandemic, but they weren't actually in any real mortal danger. And so I found the sort of um, 
her take on it on on safety and how pandemics are prevented to be kind of disingenuous and i felt like um the idea that in the 25th century that they're still going to be locking people down and telling people to mask up and disinfect their groceries or whatever when those things obviously didn't work to prevent this pandemic it, it was just kind of laughable to me I'm, I'm, she, it, it felt very blinkered yeah i mean i i mean i i took the 25th centuryness of it very lightly i mean it you know yes yes you got moon colonies uh, and yes, you've got the uh, the far colonies as well. You know, so you, the, the, there's certain futuristic touches, but I think that it it didn't really feel very far distant future. It was really just a, a way of talking about contemporary society, and you know, with with some plausible distance. And 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 I think that whether or not things turned out to be efficacious or turned out to be dangerous, I think that it was really very frightening and people were locked down across the world. No matter whether you were in New York, Texas, London, Sydney, you know, people were, were locked down and we're doing those things, you know? And so I, I, yes, I agree that if we get to the 25th century, we hopefully the, the science will either be good enough that we, everyone's vaccinated or at least to tell us don't wash your groceries. <laughs> that's, that's pointless. But I think that it was, it's a little harsh to, come at her for the experience of pandemic i mean i think look the 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 encapsulation of it in this sort of very perfect time travel world and uh in this kind of precious autobiographical tale of olive llewellyn like yeah i I found that you know it was a little saccharine i agree but I, i felt like the the real experience at the heart of that was genuine like yes if you've written a pandemic novel and the pandemic comes along, you you should just be cashing it in, but it's scary anyway. Yes. I, I see what you're saying. I guess what, I, what I'm saying is that it's a kind of a blinkered perspective because I, I live in Texas, uh, you know, and uh, you live in New York as does Emily uh, St. John Mandel. So I think our experience of the pandemic have been somewhat different. Like my, my movements were somewhat restricted for about six weeks. And then I had the option to live however I wanted. You know, and and a lot of people did. And some people behaved like they did in more sort of lockdown cities and other people lived more like they did in Florida. And I just this is my critique of all this writing is that most of the writers who are writing about the pandemic were living in New York City or someplace that was equally restricted. And so that is going to be their perspective on the pandemic, whereas my perspective is. I don't know, somewhat different. You know, yes, I wore masks and yes, I didn't go to, there were no parties. I had less activity, but it, I wasn't shut down like a lot of people I know. So I, to me, it's just, it's it's very tunnel vision and, you know, whatever. She had her, her experience was her experience and I understand that. But it's it's been, it's, it's similar in a lot of these pandemic novels. Like you and I both read the uh, the Gary Steingart book, Our Country Friends. And that's a that's a very different book and much more satirical than Sea of Tranquility, and it's much less precious. But at the end of the day, it still is kind of a similar vibe, like these, you know, wealthy uh, New Yorkers, you know, are hiding from yeah. the world. I think I think that's right. Um, but but at the same time, I don't think that Mandel's book really, for better or for worse, I don't think it really attempts to escape its tunnel vision. I think that the you know there is a sort of a scathing satire of a larger world order that gets thrown into perspective by the pandemic in Steingart's book. I, I thought that the flaws in the Steingart book were much more interesting than the flaws in the Mandel book. You know, and I think you know, I think he doesn't know quite how to end it. 
that, that book, the ending of the last hundred, I enjoyed it for a while. And then the last hundred pages were just a mess. You know, like this fever dream where this guy who's dying of COVID is dreaming about the nineties or <laughs> in Brooklyn. Yeah. And I'm just like, what the, what the hell is going on here? You know? And I didn't like how the actor in, who brought COVID back to the compound referred to it as his secret sharer. I thought that was kind of pretentious. <laughs> I, I agree with that. And But I think that part of what was interesting about that was that it was a way of talking about it's a way of talking about how COVID really highlighted some significant divisions in society that pre-existed. And, yeah, and yes, I agree that the, these were people who were privileged enough to be able to escape the city and to live in sort of a Chekhovian estate upstate. It felt to me like Mandel was just working some stuff out for herself and she happens to be an extremely competent writer. So she packaged up the Olive Llewellyn stuff with this Gasperi bloke who although although he does a lot of the running around and is a protagonist i don't think we get really a sense of him apart from his humanity is that he says he's going to do one thing and then actually when it comes down to it he actually does the other thing <laughs> it was kind of like um you know a, a mid-level non-scary episode of the twilight zone <laughs> right. right you know yeah. considering like there's so much time travel material out there now there's there's shows and there's you know there, there's a lot of excitement a lot of multiverse excitement you look at everything everywhere all at once or the marvel stuff you know this is like tinkly piano music it's like it's like sort of a, a chopin recital exactly i i, I think yeah it, it, yes i think definitely an etude right this was this was a, an, a study in how do we make the most frightening global phenomenon uh, of of recent times and also mix that in with time travel, which is potentially the most mind-blowing and dangerous um, way of meddling with human history or, or just universal history, uh, and then make them both super safe. Yeah, turn it into like a little wine and cheese mix- mixer at the professor's house. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, uh, and, and I think in the end, I just enjoyed it a little bit more than you did. You were just—I think you were more exasperated with it, and I was. Well, like, I think I think in the end too. Like I just have. My politics about the um, pandemic just kind of—I just—I cannot abide someone just shrugging their shoulders and saying, "Oh well, I guess we'll just mask up and stay home." I'm like, "No, no, there is another way. There must be. This is wrong." Go, go back, go back to to 1912 and talk to talk to people in British Columbia. I think that's that's clearly what we should do. Sure, why not? They're 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 there for the plucking. <laughs> it's true all right dan thank you so much sea of tranquility is on bookshelves now we will talk to you soon Ten years ago, you could have argued that the Harry Potter franchise was the number one entertainment franchise in the world, the absolute hottest intellectual property. And one of the most fascinating things about our current pop culture is that Harry Potter has declined significantly. Both uh, J.K. Rowling has received a lot of criticism online and off for her political views. And also the Fantastic Beasts movies have not exactly engendered a lot of love from the Harry Potter community. There is a new Fantastic Beasts movie out this week, and Stephen Garrett went to see it because he goes to see the movies. Hello, Stephen. Hello. So this is Fantastic Beasts, 
The Secrets of Dumbledore. Now, you know, I thought when the Fantastic Beast, the first Fantastic Beast movie came out, that it was going to be about this guy who was traveling around the world catching mythical beasts. But it turns out that's not really what it's about at all. No, no, it's not. Basically, they pivoted to it being this origin story of uh, Dumbledore and Grindelwald, his uh, his young lover. They were when they were in their youth, they made a blood pact to uh, change the world together, to transform the world. And yeah, one turned evil and the other turned good. And so there was that's the you know problem. You know, how do you stay friends with somebody like that? They have a blood pact. And that's the crux of this one is that as uh, Grinewald becomes more powerful, Dumbledore is helpless to stop him directly because they have this uh, blood pact. The secret of Dumbledore is that he's gay. Yeah. I mean, you know. What a secret. I mean, what a secret. It's funny, you know. So you were talking about the greater pop culture issue. I, I think the fundamentally it's too much of a good thing. I don't think it's so much about political correctness or cancel culture or any of that in that I took my daughter to this. She just turned 13. She hit her Harry Potter sweet spot probably when she was seven or eight. And she had a couple of years where she was obsessed with it and she loved it and blah, blah, blah. And she heard about some of the remarks of Rowling. Um, and she was oblivious to Johnny Depp, wife beating allegedly. And um, I took her to this. And she just didn't want to see it because it wasn't a good story. That's that's fundamentally the issue for her. And it was funny because about halfway through, you know, not halfway, but early on, you know, they mentioned that Dumbledore was gay. And she was like, Dumbledore was gay? And I was like, yeah, that, that's been out, you know, in the world for like 10 years or so. It just, you know, Rowling hinted at it in the books, never said anything explicit until I think on Twitter, right? Like 10 or 15 years ago, she said, oh yeah, Dumbledore, Dumbledore's gay. I mean, that's fine. It's all fine and good that Dumbledore is gay, but you know, Harry Potter, <laughs> you know, my child was young when the Harry Potter books first appeared. I, I remember them being books about a, a boy who discovers that he's a wizard, not about an old man who's trying to hide the fact that he's gay from a school full of wizard children. I, I don't know. I just, they've obviously made some mistakes with the the timeline and the storyline and the intellectual property they've lost the plot and you know and other um, franchises have done this as well you know star wars certainly has lost the plot from now and then but they have such a large array of characters to draw on that they're they they've been able to rescue themselves and reboot themselves a number of times i just i just find the decline of harry potter to be uh, quite amusing like it's just uh, 10 years ago it seemed like this was going to be with us forever i mean they opened amusement parks and recreations of diagon alley and i just i wonder you know if they are um draining the uh the power <laughs> well yeah i mean that's it's like it's too much of a good thing right and and one could say that they lost the plot another person you know another way of looking at it is that they're recycling the plot right Instead of uh, Voldemort being the uh, the epitome of evil who wants to destroy all the mudbloods and wipe out all the uh, the muggles and have you know pure blood wizards rule the world, it is Grindelwald. It's like literally the same sort of concoction, and you know the forces of good are battling the forces of evil, and this time it's just got a little bit more of an animalistic twist in order to you know justify uh, Newt Scamander uh, being in it who is, of course, the magic zoologist at the center of all these movies. But yeah, it's too much of a good thing. I think all of these amusement park, uh, theme park places down in, you know, uh, Universal in, in Florida and California, and then also the, uh, the, the, the studio tours, 
people would come to those regardless of how many movies or how few movies they are. I mean, they've already established a good thing. There's no need to continue to make more of this so-called good thing because all you're doing is is weakening the special sauce. Right. And, you know, Dumblewald was Gr- Grindel Voldedorf. I, I don't even know. <laughs> Vol- Vol- you know. The secretions of Dimbledorf. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm just like, I'm like, who gives a crap about any of this? I'm, I guess you could say the same thing about any franchise that you're not a fan of, but it's just like this hilarious stepping on a rake uh, situation here where, you know, they had literally the perfect story, you know, the, yeah. the yeah. Harry, the, the rise of Harry Potter taking on the ultimate man of evil who even kills him. Spoiler alert. But Harry Potter still comes back to life to defeat Voldemort. I mean, that is, you know, that's one of the great, greatest stories ever told. And now they're like, well, okay, that one was good. But let me tell you about gay Dumbledore in the World War One. Right, <laughs> you know, I just right. don't get yeah. it. I, I, don't, I don't get it. And so I guess what, you know, I'm ranting here, but you're saying this isn't a good movie. I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's a nothing burger of a movie. I mean, it's not important. It's not really um, hugely canonical to telling the story of Harry Potter, certainly. It's a diversion. It's it's uh, it's a trifle. It's an appendage. Like it's just unnecessary. You know what I mean? They've stumbled into the rake in the sense of saying, "Oh yeah, gosh, we committed to five of these. We've done three so far. Should we continue to do it?" Like it's an open ended story right now. I guess if they end it, it would just kind of end. It it really has no reason to exist. It's very superfluous. That said, it's. It was it was more enjoyable than the previous one, which was very overplotted and very confusing. And in this, I think they really straightened out the through line of the story. They made it, they simplified it, and it, it certainly was entertaining. And it's nice being in that world again. It's certainly nice, you know. There's a lot of fan service stuff going in there. I mean, you know, everybody kind of like grinned when suddenly we were at uh, Hogwarts again, and there's a young Minerva McGonagall chastising kids left and right you know baby Hagrid Hagrid babies oh not baby Hagrid yet I'd like to see that well okay so this is this is the problem it's just fan service you know they should have stopped but you know these companies seem to think that they can't and you know it's like it's funny there was only wizard well no there wasn't only one Wizard of Oz movie right there was just there was one Wizard of Oz movie but then there were like five Frank L. Baum books right there's a lot of books and they have attempted they've attempted to make sequels and prequels and all, all that and none, none of them has ever stuck i mean although there is a, a movie version of wicked coming out and that that's but that's right. but that's a that's a its own thing <laughs> i suppose so but if it's a hit don't you think they'll make more like like more backstories of peripheral characters or the one about the tiktok clock guy or <laughs> yeah, exactly. ozma of oz or, or or the great the great <laughs> the great lump of oz or whatever yeah you know and I, it's funny you you mentioned the crimes of Grindelwald. I, I saw that either on an airplane or in a hotel or in, in a hotel that was in an airplane or something. It was the only place you'd watch that movie. And I thought that was one of the worst movies I have ever borne witness to. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, and they say five movies. It's like, okay. And yeah. The next one is supposed to be wizards in world war two. Uh, okay. Right. I guess that I, 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 maybe they'll, maybe they can go up against Irwin Rommel, the desert Fox or something. <laughs> and, and then, and then what is like wizards at Glastonbury in the groovy sixties, right? You know, right. you know, it's like, come on, enough. I know wizards in the fifties. 
it's really unfortunate, you know, like they all could have, like you said, it was just like, it was, they did a great job adapting all those seven books into eight movies and everybody seemed happy. I, I think the natural pivot is to wait five or 10 years and then just, you know, HBO Max is going to green light a $500 million multi-part series remake of all seven books and, and be really faithful to the books. Cause of course the movies weren't right. They allotted a lot of chapters and, and, you know, streamlined stuff in order to fit two and a half hours. Or they're just going to make like a call me by your name style movie about Dumbledore <laughs> and running around naked in ponds and stuff. That would be kind of, fun. I have to say, you know, that the gay thing is really an aside. Like there's one line where he said, you know, I loved you when we were younger. I loved you. And that's, you know, why we did what we did, but you know, it's not like smoldering tension between the two of them. That would be more interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a throwaway thing. They apparently edited it out of the um, the Chinese release of this film. Um, don't say gay in China. Don't say gay. No, no, no. All right. Well, Fantastic Beats, The Secrets of Dumbledore is in theaters now, and it will be on HBO Max probably within the next three weeks. So um, <laughs> don't worry. You'll, you'll get your chance at it. Steven, <laughs> good to chat at you. Uh, always a pleasure. It is notoriously difficult to turn video games into movies and TV shows. And the new Halo series, which is airing on Paramount Plus, is proving to not be an exception to the rule. Ryan Kahlberg, a contributor for us, has written about Halo, the TV series. He's sat through it and he's with me to talk about it. Hello, Ryan. Hi, Neil. So, so Halo, you were you a Halo player back in the sort of Halo heyday? I mean, I know there's still... Halo games being produced. I absolutely was. I would play through the story multiple times. I would play multiplayer with friends. I would play multiplayer with unsavory people that popped out of the hat at random. So I've got I've got my time invested in Halo. I feel like I'm qualified to judge an adaptation of the games. Yeah, it's a world it's a world you understand. You know the characters, you know the backstory. Absolutely, yeah. I would say one of the things that always attracted me to Halo beyond the, you know, just the, the mindless shoot 'em up was that it, it wasn't really a, a mindless shoot 'em up in the mode of like Doom or Quake or whatever, that there was a lot of real intelligent world building that went on in its construction. And that is in evidence in the TV series. That's the good news. The bad news is that there probably aren't enough things that make Halo Halo so far in the series to make it an, an exciting, worthy adaptation. Meaning there's not enough action. It is very slow in the early going. We're through three episodes now. I think the fourth is just about to drop today. And we haven't seen a Halo yet, for one. What is a Halo? This is not, this, video games are a, are a blind spot for me in pop culture. So in the original Halo, you play as this, you know, amped up, super armored Spartan soldier called the Master Chief or John 117. And uh, you're on a spaceship that's uh, at war. Earth is at war with uh, this species or a collection of alien species called the Covenant, which, you know, make for convenient enemies because you're not actually killing humans. So you can feel better about that. And you end up basically crash landing on this 
kind of a, a ring that has terrain on its interior all the way around. It's this huge, like a ring world that you spend most of the game traversing and trying to, you know, get to some objective. And, you know, in the meantime, you run into one kind of alien and then another kind of alien. It's very much like, you know, okay, here's a, here's a half an hour firefights and then here's a five minute cutscene, and then here's a little bit of exposition and then you're back into the firefights. Well, in the series, they, you know, they haven't gotten to that stage yet. And I'm a patient guy, you know, and I am willing to say that so far this adaptation is Halo, but it just isn't hitting yet. Well, this is what I think about all adaptations, really about all, all TV shows. You know, there has to be it has to be interesting to watch. It has to be exciting. You know, there's a lot of world building, for instance, in The Expanse, but from you know, the get-go in The Expanse, which admittedly is an adaptation of books and not a, a video game, there's action. There's action, action, firefights, exploding things. I, I feel like if you're watching a space show about fighting aliens, not like Foundation, but like a fighting show, there should be a lot of fighting. Absolutely. And this, you know, compares unfavorably to The Expanse in that way, you know, in that it's not as smart as The Expanse. It's not as actiony as the expanse it's it's not as actiony as a most tv shows of its type i would think i'm trying to think of something else it compares poorly to anything it sounds like well i mean i didn't like the foundation series on apple plus that was very very tedious uh watching but that's not a foundation in general is not an action uh franchise you know it's a franchise about ideas so it makes sense that it would be make for boring tv but it just doesn't make sense to me i don't know i mean I can't think of a, a good video game adaptation either as a team. I guess, I guess you could count the Sonic the Hedgehog movies as successful, you know, in, in, in their own way. They may be the best video game adaptations of all time. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I'm hard-pressed to come up with something that tops it, especially if you leave out, you know, the kind of incestuous world of anime and video gaming where, you know, they make games based on anime and vice versa, uh, and people love them or hate them or whatever. Sure. You can, you can make a case for like detective Pikachu, but again, those are very different kinds of games yeah. than the one we're talking about here, you know? And I, and I know some people are partial to the resident evil movies or at least a couple of them. Yeah. The first one's pretty good. Yeah. And it had a lot of action. Um, I just, I find it bizarre. So, you know, it's like, but you talk about this in your piece, Halo had a long and tortured path to the screen. Yeah, Microsoft bet big, you know, on this series. They paid a million dollars up front to get a hot young screenwriter named Alex Garland, who, you know, had just come off of, I think, 28 Days Later, and, uh, you know, who would then go on later. He's got, uh, he wrote and directed Ex Machina and Annihilation, and he's got a new one coming out pretty soon. So they invested a little bit, and then they sent their troops, literal troops, off to Hollywood. They rented Spartan armor suits from the only guy in America that was making them and used them to deliver scripts to the studios. So you've got these six foot three guys in shiny armor waiting in the lobby of the studios and they've got a script and a term sheet. I can see it. I can see the assistant coming out and saying, would you guys like some water? <laughs> yeah, I know. Like I, I, they probably weren't allowed to take their helmets off. I don't know what they did for going to the bathroom, you know, because they might have had to wait a while. But uh, history does not relate that, unfortunately. No, but that but that didn't take. And then and Steven Spielberg was involved at one point. He's actually on this project. Uh, he was announced as the exec producer for the TV series, which they announced uh, like, I don't know, nine years ago. 
and I, he's still listed as an exec producer, you know, where a lot of people who were attached to the product like, project, like uh, Peter Jackson and Neil Blomkamp were supposed to be involved in making it along, you know, when it, back when it was a movie, you don't see their names on this project, but Spielberg's still on this project. So I, I assume he had some kind of a hand in developing it uh, even into its latter stages. Yeah, and this was um, and you could say that this is hiding out on Paramount Plus. Although, given the popularity of the uh, Yellowstone universe, which we've talked about on this show uh, previously, Paramount Plus is suddenly like not that bad a place to be if you're a show. But I don't, I don't get the sense that Halo is engendering a lot of enthusiasm. You don't, you're not, you're not still playing it, so you're not really part of the community anymore. But I'm just guessing that this is. I, I'm not seeing a lot of chit chat about it. Yeah, what's weird about it for me is that I have not seen one iota of advertising for it, you know, and you would think that I would fall into the target market of people who are nostalgic for video games and people who like military sci-fi. And, you know, I see plenty of you know internet content ads for other things on Paramount, like Picard or Star Trek Discovery, but not- Or, or Lower Decks. Yeah, but not a word about Halo. It's like it just kind of uh, mysteriously vanished off everyone's radar the second it premiered. Not not a good thing. Well, Halo is on Paramount Plus. In case you haven't heard of it, uh, maybe this is the first time you've heard of it, and you can you can watch it there. Meanwhile, you wrote another piece for us this week. You had a, a double double dip this week, which is rare for you. Um, you wrote about Tokyo Vice on HBO Max. Now, you know, ordinarily you would think that um, I would be the target market for Tokyo Vice. I am a former crime reporter to some extent. I like noir stories and um, I'm drawn to this kind of material. But there's there, there's a, a flaw in, in that logic in that I really, really despise Ansel Elgort as an actor. And he is the main character of Tokyo Vice. He is the main character. Uh, the, the good news is, and I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Ansel Elgort either, although granted, I think I'd only seen him in a couple of things before this. There is a lot to like about the show, even if you don't like Ansel Elgort. Um, did, did you ever read the book that it was based on? By I, I have not read that book, no. I'm- Jake Edelstein, you know, came out with this uh, absolutely gonzo, absolutely wonderful book, you know, some 10 years ago where he described his life as a, a reporter on the crime beat in Japan, you know, and, and more specifically as an American on the crime beat in Japan and all that entails, you know, with uh, having to get used to all the foibles of Japanese society and uh, having to get used to a society that didn't seem necessarily ready to accept him as a reporter. But it's also absolutely gonzo to the point of you know, here's an interesting story about interfacing with the Yakuza, and then here's a bizarre sexual encounter I had. So it's it's that level of detail and that kind of uh, exposure of the self that got me interested and in say, yeah, this would make a great TV series or movie. This this also was originally supposed to be a movie, you know, back in the day with Daniel Radcliffe as uh, Jake Adelstein, which probably would have made for a better TV show as well. But I imagine Radcliffe's quote is pretty hard to meet for a TV show. Yeah. I don't know if they could pay $10 million an episode, even even HBO money. That's, that's a lot. Uh, but it, you know, it does have Ken Watanabe, you know, one of the great actors of screen or television uh, as, as the sort of the main cop that uh, Edelstein teams up with. And I, that, I found that very appealing, you know, in general, well, as you mentioned, the Michael Mann directed the pilot. 
Yeah. So you're automat- you're automatically getting uh, like uh, some real authentic noir vibe there from him. Yeah, even if you don't watch the rest of the series, you know, you could watch the pilot with the sound off just for the framing. You know, these these beautiful shots and everything's got the, you know, the grainy, gritty appearance and there's lots of negative space and it's it's really wonderfully shot. Uh, the first episode also probably features more of Ansel Elgort than all the subsequent episodes do. So, you know, if, if that's a deal breaker for you. It's not... It's not. I can watch it again. Like I said, like this is this is a kind of show that I find I find it very I find very appealing. I love I love noir, and you know I'm I'm a sucker for a good show or movie about reporters because I have been one, so I'm drawn to that. The one thing you know that I absolutely hate 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 about it is I hate story construction where you start at a crucial moment and then the entire series is going to be a flashback leading up to that moment. Oh God, I hate that too. Yeah. And And this does that. This does that. It's sad, but the good news is the series is so long and it's going to take so long to get there that you probably will forget about the ending, you know, and and, you know, TV shows and movies do this. Sometimes it's just a random scene in the middle of, uh, of the series or the movie that isn't that important. And you're like, why did you start there? Why not just tell the story straight through? Yeah. But unless it's like one of these deals where it's like an old person looking back on their life. <laughs> so I guess that's okay. But otherwise, it's just like, why start at an exciting moment? Why not earn our appreciation of that exciting moment? Exactly. It seems like something that they do when they're scared that it won't catch on with audiences because it's too much of a slow burn or whatever. And I don't know what they're worried about. It's on HBO Max. It's going to have a built-in audience of people who, you know, just watch everything that's on HBO Max no matter what. It's not TV. It's HBO. Exactly. All right. Well, I'm still interested. Maybe I'll just skip the opening flashback and, and watch, watch it through past that. That's what, that's what I'm it, – it's like if you're watching a baseball game and, and they show you like a climactic at bat in the ninth inning before the first inning starts. Right. And then, then they, they freeze frame on like the last pitch, you know, when it's a 3-2 count and the bases are loaded. And then, yeah. Don't do it. Screenwriters, don't do it. Ryan and I are telling you right now, don't do it. In any case, Ryan, it's great to have you in the pages uh, or I guess the pages. They're pages of Book and Film Globe, the screen. They're web pages. They're web yes. pages. Yeah, they're still we're, we're, we're kind of old school that way. You know, we're not a we're not a, a Twitch stream. <laughs> we're not a. Uh, we're not TikTok. We're just a, we're a, a website, and we're proud of it. So thanks, thanks for writing about uh, Tokyo Vice and about Halo. And I will talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Neil. Bye. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Tokyo Vice now on HBO Max and Halo is on Paramount Plus. Also, thanks to Stephen Garrett for enduring Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore for me and for us. And thanks to Dan Friedman for talking to me about Sea of Tranquility and other pandemic novels. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor in chief of Book and Film Globe and the host of this podcast. Thank you so much for reading the site. We're at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for reading. Thanks for watching. Thanks for being alive. I will talk to you soon. Oh, when there's nothing, nothing left to lose. 
just have one thing to say to you. Expectus Patronum. There you go. What does that one do? Uh, makes my Patronus appear. What increases website traffic? <laughs> traffic is increases. <laughs> That's true. That's a good one. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. Audio Hopper gives you a commercial-free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. Audio Hopper. Real news narrated. In the App Store.